It's Monday the 9th of March 2020. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. I'm joined this week by Darren Adam, a presenter on LBC, Britain's longest-running commercial radio station, bringing news and talk to the whole of the UK. Uh, Darren is also a long-standing Islandsvinut, or uh, Icelandophile, and a regular face here in the far northwest of Europe. Welcome to you. Thank you, Alex. Lovely to be here. Um, obviously, the big running news stories this week haven't changed that much. Um, mm. We've still got the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak at the fore. Uh, we've got 58 cases in Iceland at the last count, and the first people to catch the virus within the country itself uh, were confirmed on Friday. On the strikes front, we are three weeks in, and 1,800 Epling members working for the city of Reykjavik are not about to go back to work just yet. Tough negotiations continue, and 300 members in neighbouring municipalities are joining the strike today. On the other hand, uh, the public sector strike of over 18,000 workers in unions working under the BSRB umbrella has been called off some six hours after it started at midnight uh, this evening, tonight, today, whatever. Um, A deal was signed and will now be put to members. A group of whales in North Iceland has been observed hunting in a way never before seen in Iceland, and indeed in a way that might be completely new to science. Uh, Staying at sea, Iceland's fishermen caught less last year, but made more money from their catch than in 2018, which is nice. And the Iceland Symphony Orchestra turned 70 years old this past week and celebrated with a concert that was broadcast live on Rúv and online. So, where should we begin? Well, um, I don't think anybody wants to start here, but we probably have to start with the coronavirus, don't we? Um, Iceland now, I think, we're at 58 cases, you said. Um, There's a friend of mine, a very concerned friend of mine, who's planning a trip to London in a couple of months. And I've pointed out to her that London, a city of 9 million people, has about as many cases as Iceland, a country of 360,000 people. I don't know whether that means that proportionately, I suppose it does, that coronavirus is much more prevalent here in Iceland, but it doesn't feel like there is much of a panic. I was in Bodganes over the weekend, and there were plenty of toilet rolls still available in the <laughs> in the Netto supermarket. I don't know where this panic buying of toilet paper it's, came from. It's just the most bizarre thing, isn't it? Yeah. I think it started in Australia, actually, where there was a rumour that a toilet roll factory was going to be changing production from toilet roll to surgical masks. And everyone panicked and thought that means there will be no toilet roll. OK. Why that's causing people to panic there or anywhere else is, is beyond me. Mm. I mean, I, I didn't realise that. So that is a, that's a well, kind that of is, a valid reason. You can understand well, it. But it's a valid reason if it's true. Uh, yeah. I think it's true that people responded to it as if it were true, mm. but it might not be, mm. <laughs> like so much else. And elsewhere in the world, people doing the same thing, yeah. certainly definitely not true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the cases in Iceland, of course, most of them still, luckily, came with people uh, from ski trips yes. uh, in northern Italy yeah, and yeah. in Austria. <clears throat> but there have now been cases that have been... Uh, transmitted within the country, mm-hmm. uh, obviously that's a concern, right? Yeah, I think so, and that's true everywhere. I think I'm also right in saying that in Iceland, those people who have it are all well. They are not uh, perishing from this. They are healthy. And that, of course, is is what's true with most people. 98% of people will not perish as a consequence of this. And indeed, in developed countries, that's arguably even higher than 98%. But the worry, as you say, is that you get community transmission where it's not possible to trace why someone has a condi- a case of, of COVID-19, of coronavirus, back to where they might have got it from. Mm. If that number significantly increases, I think there's two problems there. Firstly, 
It means that scientists are less able to keep track of this, but it also means that people are going to panic more because if you know where something has come from, there's a reassurance that comes with that, isn't there? If you don't know where something has come from, the likelihood that you're going to start thinking, well, maybe I'm next. Mm. Now, you've been covering this story, as I think journalists around the world have, uh, quite mm. a lot on your own show. What are the... Are there any differences that you've spotted between the way Iceland is dealing with coronavirus and the UK? I think, well, as I say, there's toilet rule left. So that's a, that's a start. There is, <laughs> there is less panic. I don't know whether that's because the government here are responding in a different way. It was certainly felt that in the UK, our own government was slow off the mark on this one. We do have excellent experts who flank the Prime Minister. And I think Boris Johnson has been well advised to, to shut up and say very little and let the experts speak. And that is reassuring. In this country, here in Iceland, I don't know, you, there seems to be less of a sense of panic about coronavirus. Maybe it's because thus far, the cases have been largely confined to those who've, who've been in affected areas. Mm. Do you get a sense that here... With those numbers increasing, that will change? I don't know. I, there's certainly uh, a, a great awareness of it in the mm. workplace. Here at Ruv, for example, yeah. we're, as a frontline service, <clears throat> sorry, taking it very seriously. Um, but people are getting on with their lives because what else can you do? What else can you do? Yeah. Uh, there's also a sense that the government in Iceland, I think, have reacted quite quickly. Yes. Uh, they've quarantined a lot of people at home, uh, over 400, probably getting on for 500 now. Yeah. Uh, in precaution, obviously, most of them don't get sick. Um, so, and there's daily press conferences yeah. from the Civil Protection Agency and uh, the chief epidemiologist I was, keeping people informed. I was very impressed that in Iceland, anyone who self-isolates for two weeks, anyone who's self-employed and self-isolates for two weeks will be paid properly. They will get the equivalent, we think, of what they would get if they were working in a, in a normal circumstance. That is not yet the case in the UK. And so there are lots of people, not just self-employed people like, like myself, but people who work in the so-called gig economy, who are on zero-hours contracts, who have no security. They're in very precarious positions when it comes to their employment. Mm. They are now worrying about what happens if they have to take time off. And you don't want to put someone in the position of thinking... Do I go to work and risk everybody else's health or do I have money coming in so I can pay the bills? So I think what Iceland has done is tremendous and that really should be echoed by other countries, including my own one. We shall see. And talking of the the gig economy or self-employed people, it, they're mm. often the ones at the most risk because they're having yes. direct contact with people. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the cases here in Iceland was a taxi driver yeah. who drove with four uh, infected people from the airport. Um, mm. And obviously you're talking about things like Uber. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the UK, uh, yeah. At, at risk not just of being infected, but of, of infecting, because they are in contact with so many people. So these are precisely the people whose uh, employment you wish to protect, or at least whose income you wish to protect. And I think Iceland has done a tremendous thing. Wait and see. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, yeah, so looking a, a little bit further afield... Yeah. Kind of good news coming from China at the moment that the number of cases has gone down rapidly there. Yes. Um, and now Italy seems to be the focus point, a lot closer to home. It's good news with China unless the consequence of that is that the way to deal with this is to introduce really, really authoritarian and really strict measures because that wouldn't be good news. If, if the solution to this mm. is to introduce the kind of restrictions that China has been able to introduce and is able to introduce... I think that would be an unhappy situation for a lot of people. We shall watch, as you say, Italy very carefully, 
uh, to see if this quarantining of 16 million people is either necessary or, or, or effective. Yeah. Uh, culturally speaking, Italy, of course, very different. Um, some people say that their government started very late with any sort of uh, yeah. reaction, but then has taken a very strong reaction suddenly because it's such a serious problem. And another country that's very badly affected, again, culturally very different in many ways, is Iran. Of course. So in a sense, we have we have these rather grim experiments taking place, don't we, in various countries to see which uh, to see which strategy is likely to be most effective. Mm. Maybe it will be Iceland. In, yeah, wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, the hospitals around Iceland have banned all visitors mm. Mm. and uh, uh, nursing homes as well, which is a horrible situation for the patients yeah. to be in and yeah. their families, yeah. but understandable. Well, there's a family in the UK, one of the, I think, three confirmed deaths at time of going to press. Um, one elderly gentleman whose family are having to self-isolate and therefore can't plan the funeral even and can't grieve in the normal way because they're having to go through two weeks of self-isolation themselves, which, mm -hmm. can't, be, which can't be very pleasant. No, absolutely not. And for, if you're in hospital with something completely unrelated, you've had a mm. heart attack or mm. something, you want your family around you. Yeah. They're not allowed yeah. in now. Yeah. Yeah, but completely understandable. I have to say, my my seventy plus year old parents are remarkably sanguine and unconcerned by this. So I'm taking some comfort in that. It means I don't have to worry about them worrying, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> um, OK, anything else to add or should we move on? I think the strikes are interesting. Mm. Um, and there is some some news on that, of course, isn't there, in the last couple of days. The, the, the Epling strikers who work for the, the city of Reykjavik. Um, those strikes now extend outside of, of Reykjavik, don't they? Yes. Uh, uh, only about 300 extra people joining, but they're mm. in places like Kopovog or Hapnafjord, Seltjalanis. Yeah, yeah. Um, joining in, yeah, exactly that. Mm. And and I suppose one of the one of the functions, one of the many functions that the Epling members perform is, is that of sanitation around the city of Reykjavik and now in other places. Mm. So, it, I mean, it's not a great look, is it, at a time of a viral outbreak for for sanitation services to be to be compromised for any reason? I mm. suppose, even though it, it probably doesn't present any particular threat as far as coronavirus is concerned, it's not a great time for it. No, and as you say, the services are definitely compromised, but mm. they have mm. been granted exemptions to collect rubbish. Uh, precisely for this reason, mm -hmm. and so collections have been taking place, but not as many. Not as many. Not yeah. As, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I suppose the better strike news is that the BSRB strike is not going ahead, and that's been assuming off. it gets approved by members in the future. But yeah, because mm -hmm. it started at midnight. Mm -hmm. It did start at midnight. Mm -hmm. Six hours later, it was cancelled before right. most right. of its members had even woken up. Right. <laughs> so yeah, that is great news. I wonder what didn't happen during those six hours that were supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> Probably, I mean, of course, there are lots of services, nursing homes and of course. hospitals yeah, yeah. and yeah. foreign service, like, you know, diplomatic services mm -hmm. possibly even. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But yeah. yeah. So that is very good news because this would have been a big deal. It was uh, affecting state services and municipalities across the whole country mm -hmm. uh, in a far greater number. And we've seen the destruction, not destruction, the disruption um, that's been happening over the last three weeks anyway. Yes, yes. And again, for a country that is not entirely dependent on tourism, but obviously tourism has become so important in Iceland over the last few years, and I've, I've witnessed that myself, my partner have seen that over the last 21 years that we've been here. Um, you know, the face that the city shows to people, the face that the country shows to people at this time with coronavirus affecting every country, 
you want to make sure that the, the, the face of Iceland to tourists and to visitors is as is as welcoming and as functional uh, as possible. So, so anything that, A, gets people who are on low wages the kind of treatment that they deserve, for which they have been striking and striving, is obviously excellent. But it's great for the country as well. It's great for an outward-facing, outward-looking country like Iceland, an outward-facing city like Reykjavik, to be able to say that all of its services are working properly. Exactly, yeah. And if you're providing a clean um, visage and, and, and the... Things seem to be organised and working effectively. Yeah. That's that builds confidence, yeah. and people, yeah. word spreads. Mm. If all the litter bins downtown are overflowing, as they have been, and mm. looking dirty, and the streets aren't being cleaned, it's sending the opposite message. Yes, I'm one of those people that that would actually think that it's pretty hard to make Reykjavik and Iceland look anything other than absolutely fantastic. But uh, you know, I am deeply in love with the place and, and <laughs> have been for decades. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's a positive thing. Yeah. Um, th- apparently, the key to it, the BSRB mm. negotiators are saying, the key to it has been that their demand, their request for um, a shorter working week, mm-hmm. has been approved, and that was what turned the tables and led to the signatures being put onto the paper. Yeah, I, I think with the um, with with the Epling strike, uh, and you sometimes see this in the UK when when unions talk about the need for industrial action, it's almost as if there's a certain vulgarity about talking about money. And so they will look at other issues and say, it's not about the money, it's about the working hours, it's about conditions, whatever it happens to be. The Epling strike seems to be quite honestly and openly about money. It's about some of the poorest people in society not having enough money to live on. And it's quite refreshing in a way that that case is being made unashamedly, Mm. as I think it should be. Mm. And uh, not making much progress. No, indeed. Um, I, I suppose everyone, everyone living in Reykjavik and 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 now neighbouring towns will be will be wondering if progress can be made, mm. and what that progress is going to look like. Because it doesn't feel like it's a situation that can persist terribly much longer. Something has to give. Well, at the moment, we just don't know which. We've got preschools that have been closed for three weeks now. P- parents with their children at home not not being able to work, and they don't mm. get sick pay for the parents don't yeah, get yeah. sick pay for yeah. the fact that their children are at home. So it's it's a dire situation in a lot of families. Mm. Um, yeah, but they are at least meeting now because for a long time the, the the state mediator didn't see the point in calling mm. meetings because they were so far apart. Mm-hmm. Now, though, they've been meeting over the weekend. They adjourned late last night. They're meeting again this afternoon. Mm-hmm. It seems to be that there is movement. And I wonder if there might be public pressure here, because sometimes industrial action can be dependent on what the public actually think and which side they take to be to be brutal about it. And my hope is that more people think that it is important to pay people properly <laughs> than it is to save money, essentially. And if, if, the, if public pressure starts to move in favour of those who are striking, who believe that their cause is just, then, then maybe a solution, maybe a conclusion to this is, is, is closer than we think. Hopefully. Although mm. my, my feeling about that is that people sympathised very strongly with the strikers yeah. from the very beginning, and maybe that, that, that the trust in them and the support for them is what's degrading, because the longer this goes on... Mm. Mm. So the they less... started with a high base of support and that's falling away. Yeah. yeah. Having said yeah. that, neither side has bathed itself in glory. There's been quite a public um, Facebook <laughs> fight between the head of the union and mm. the mayor. Mm. Not a fight, perhaps, but a 
to and fro. And a lot of people are saying, we don't have patience for this. You should be mm. talking over a table, not over the internet. A social media spat, yes, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, which is a very fair point. Yeah. yeah. Sitting in your office typing, you should probably be meeting. I can't think of anything that has been improved by being discussed on social media, generally. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's a very good point. <laughs> because it's less personal. You... The the eye contact, the tone of voice, the yeah. everything. It's also public makes as communication. Well. It is, you know, if you're if you're fighting with somebody on social media, everybody can see it. It's not dignified. No, <laughs> apart from being anything else. I suppose there's a a value to that though, because you are very publicly holding someone to account. You're putting your point of view and demanding that they respond, and it being so public means that they can't escape it. I suppose. Mm, yeah, I mean, I just I just think of the way that we. In sort of in our industry, what I do for a living in the UK, the way that social media can be a force for good, but also a force for evil and nonsense as well. It um, it, it tends to it tends to reflect humanity, doesn't it? Social media, the best of it and the worst of it. But I don't think it is a forum for resolving industrial disputes. Well, you seem to have been proven right already on that front. <laughs> um, should we talk about something else? Yeah. I know you're interested in the orchestra. Yes. Um, this is the Iceland Symphony Orchestra turning 70 this week. I mean, talking of strikes, actually, did they not briefly go on strike a few years ago or there was talk of the, the ISO going on strike? I believe that. It rings yeah. a bell. Yeah. yeah. And oh. this wasn't long after... Um, the triangle. It <laughs> wasn't long after Harpa was constructed, um, which is a fantastic venue... For the ISO and for, for any um, for any artistic endeavours, musical artistic endeavours, so it seemed like a strange time for them to go on strike, having just been given this <laughs> this marvelous marvelous concert hall. But no, I'm um, something of a fan of uh, Jorn Leifs, um, who's perhaps the most, I, I guess, the most prominent Icelandic classical composer. Um, and the ISO have recorded many, if indeed not all, of his works. Um, which I do enjoy, and I'm sort of fighting my way into. It's quite a... Jorn Leifs is, is quite a hard listen to begin with, but then once you... And this is such a cliche in a sense, but once you get a sense of the music describing particularly the landscape of Iceland, um, it, it starts to make sense. And you can... Again, this this sounds like a cliche, but you can hear the chlorine, you can hear the lava, you can hear the the rocks... You can hear the waterfalls, you can hear the, 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 the ice and the fire and all of that in, in the music of Jorn Leifs. And the Iceland Symphony Orchestra have been, as you would imagine, um, stout defenders and uh, performers of, of his work. Mm. What role do you think that they hold now? They're, they're, I think I'm probably right in saying that they're stronger now than ever, they're better known than ever, they're bigger than ever. Yeah, they... Um, they they tour. There's a there's a tour taking place just now. I think a worldwide tour, or at least a European tour. Um, Anna Thorvaldsdottir, who's a contemporary Icelandic composer, has written a piece uh, for them called Irreality, um, which which they carry with them like a sort of calling card to various places that they go. This is their contemporary Icelandic piece that mm -hmm. they perform, and they've been doing that for about ten years. Um, and I think the work of Anna Thorvaldsdottir is is really interesting as well. Um, she's probably the most... Well, we talk, of course, about the recent Oscar win, don't we? But I think what Anna Thorvaldsdottir does is, is also really, really interesting. And the fact that she has created this piece for the Icelandic Symphony Orchestra to, to take with them is... Uh, it's a good... 
indication of where contemporary Icelandic classical music is, I think. Mm. Of course, Iceland's a <clears throat> very musical country yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite important to have a good symphony orchestra um, with a good place to yes. perform. Mm -hmm. 70 years ago, March 1950, they came out with 40 musicians um, in Osterbayer Cinema, mm -hmm. a very sort of makeshift setup. And now, 70 years later, to mark that, they came out with over 100 musicians in Harpa. Mm. So it's a definite forward progression. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love Harpa as well. I think it's a, it's a great building. I remember it being constructed. Um, the, the recession was, was taking place. I seem to remember there was much debate about whether it should go ahead at all. Mm. But I'm very glad that it has. And, ever, and what's interesting is that friends of mine who come to me and say, you know about Iceland, where should we go and see when we're in, in Iceland and Reykjavik? And that happens a lot, by the way. I had seven people one year contacting me for uh, for tips on where to go in Iceland. I had a Word document on my computer that I just emailed out to people. <laughs> so you're a friend of Darren, you're coming to Iceland, here's the document. <laughs> but I always recommend Harpa, um, even if they aren't necessarily people that would want to go along and see concerts or whatever. I just think it's an astonishing building. And it makes sense where it is. There's a lot of stuff happening in, in 101 in downtown that, that, that maybe feels a little bit incongruous. But Harper seems to make sense to me architecturally where it is. It's a beautiful building. I always recommend people, even if you don't see anything, just go and see the building. Just wander around and look up at it and look at the lights on the front and go to the back and, and see the view out to Isha uh, and, and across the water. Um, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful building and a great home for the, for the orchestra. Mm. And and more as well. It does it, it attracts um, international musicians that may not come to Iceland yeah. anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. And comedians as well. There's been a big spate of uh, stand-up comedians that come there. And I have to wonder, talking about music, if, as seems at least possible, if Iceland wins the Eurovision Song Contest this year with Dudley, um, where do you have the the the, the final next year? We don't know. <laughs> But I think, I feel like it's something that Iceland has wanted for so long. Yeah. That it's one of those sort of theteretast things that it, it will <laughs> happen somehow. Because uh, there have been proponents of saying if we win Eurovision, we'll have to hold it in Copenhagen, <laughs> for example, which would be possible. Uh-huh. But, but not very I, popular, I No, suppose. I don't think no, it would be. No. Also, you'd miss out on the on the, not only the spectacle, but also the income. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. expensive to put on. You might as yeah. well have a... Fill town with thousands of people. So it'd be a moonshot. It would be, we, we've said that we will create it, therefore we will create it. We have to build a place big enough. That's my feeling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because it has to be indoors. Yes. And you're going to want getting on for 10,000 people, if yep. not more. Oh, so probably th there not. There isn't a place yet. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves there. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's, you know, at the number of people in in the UK who have, again posted and commented on Facebook about Dudley, saying this is a... And these are people who, who don't really care about Eurovision or Iceland, <laughs> particularly, who I've been really struck by how spontaneously they're saying, wow, this is this is very likely to be a winner this year. And it was top of the rankings, yeah, yeah. last I checked, yeah, it was. Uh, the bookmakers' rankings. Obviously, not, everyone's, not every country has selected yet. I actually think, and they can have this for nothing, the Iceland Symphony Orchestra in their 70th year should... A commission and perform an orchestral version of that song. They do have, they do, as so many orchestras do, they do play with pop music and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. collaborate with um, people. I think they did something with Hatri. 
Really? Am I making that up? I, I would love to hear an orchestral version of Hatred Will Prevail. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, they, they they definitely did Skullmult um, more really? than once. They they really? collaborated in uh-huh. live concerts at Harper. Actually, that would make sense. And yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah. stunning because uh-huh. obviously Skullmult is very epic. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, very young lives, yes. in a way. Mm. So, yeah, music's in good shape. It seems to be. It mm. seems to be. Um, and as I say, if, if, if Iceland uh, does end up hosting the Eurovision Song Contest, it'll be another excuse to come back next year. Not that you need them. Not that I need them, no. Not that I need them at all. Now, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we could talk about something else. Anything else that's standing on the list? Well, that I know that you to... love this whale story. Should we do that? Sure, okay. yeah. I do. I just think it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, there's only, uh, scientists say, there's only about 300 individuals, mm-hmm. whales, humpback whales in the world, that are known to hunt with this curtain of bubbles. Uh, and it's never been seen around here before. And the the way that this group of whales is doing it is different to the other ones. They're opening their mouths in a different yeah, plane, like, mm. aren't they, essentially? Yeah. So this was in... Oh, it wasn't in Husavik, but it was near Akareri, I think. That's right, uh, And yeah. the marine biologist who spotted this behaviour, as you say, said this is perhaps completely unprecedented. Mm. Icelandic whales are doing something that we've never seen before. Mm. We, um, on our first trip in 1998, we tried to go whale-watching in Husavik, um, but we called the number that was advertised and we got hold of the guy who was in London promoting his whale-watching trips. <laughs> Don't. And that was in 1998. I thought you were going to say nobody answered. Cause it's, sorry? I thought you were just going to say nobody answered the phone. Oh, no, he did answer. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm in London. Oh. I can't take you out. <laughs> yeah, uh, these particular whales, they're mm. not, uh, they've never been recorded in Iceland before. They're mm. new. So the whales are new as well as as well as the behaviour. Yeah, so we don't know where they came from. Yeah, and maybe they'll teach others to do this because they do learn from each other. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, we were in the um, the beautiful pool at uh, Hofsos. Oh, uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, where you can see right over the the fjord, and we were looking for the whales because it's it's the, it's the same kind of the part of the country. It's the north coast, but we we couldn't see any, unfortunately. Mm. Maybe they'd my... flown south for the winter. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favourite moments in that regard was I was driving in the Westfjords. Yeah. And you know the roads there are right along the coast, along yeah, the shoreline. Yeah, yeah. And just whales swimming along beside really? the car. And there's not many places in the world you'd ever see that. No. No. And, <laughs> yeah. and you have failed to monetize this, it seems. I far. have, yeah. Well, I don't have that car anymore, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, well, um, it happens quickly every week, but I have to say we've run out of time. Sorry. Uh, The Week in Iceland will be back next Monday, the 16th of March, on roof.is forward slash English, on Roof English on Facebook, through the Roof app and your favourite podcast platform. Thanks to my guest, Darren Adam, and also to Lydia Gretostotir for running the studio. In case you didn't know yet, uh, Roof will be broadcasting a live public television debate on immigration in Iceland tomorrow, Tuesday the 10th, at 7.40 in the evening. It will be in Icelandic on Roof 1, in English on Roof 2 and Roof.is, and also in Polish on Roof.is. Uh, it's the first time Roof has ever offered live interpretation in English or Polish, uh, so do be sure to tune in. This week's piece of Icelandica is called Elskovinus and it's by Stuthmen, one of Iceland's best-known domestic acts. The band's been together for 50 years, and this song is currently number two on the Rostfur chart. Bye for now.
Mitt bóleró og búkalú Bakar þetta allt saman á endanum 